Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. This week, we are discussing how to find value when constructing a sustainable investment portfolio. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. The steep rise in popularity of sustainable investment solutions has led to a similar rise in valuations in many of the qualifying asset classes, while many of the companies addressing emerging social needs are technology businesses with all of the investment characteristics of that sector, presenting fresh challenges for advisors and their clients. Joining me today to discuss the topic are Roberta Barr, Head of Value Team ESG at Schroders, John Leeper, Chief Investment Officer at Cavistock, and Ben Palmer, Head of Responsible Investment at Brooks MacDonald. This podcast is sponsored by Schroders. Ben, when a sector is attracting the sort of flows that sustainable investments have been over the past year and indeed more, how does one avoid investing in, in bubbles? Morning, David, and thank you for having me on the podcast today. Um, it's a it's a really interesting question. I think one of the challenges of this sector more broadly is actually going back to the terminology used and actually how do you define sustainable investing? The way that we tend to look at it is into two key categories. So firstly, looking at the products and services of a company and whether they are positively contributing to a, a sustainability challenge. And then secondly, looking at the operational footprint of the company and how businesses' operations are having either positive or negative effects on the environment and society. And I think it's important for us when we're thinking about those two areas in the context of sustainability and to your question about how can you try and avoid bubbles? Because I think firstly, if we're looking at products and services, part of the question comes around, well, what do you define as the sustainability landscape? Do you take a relatively narrow view of sustainability, maybe being a singular theme, um, so certain strategies that might solely look at cleaner energy as an example or do you take a broader view looking at a broader uh, network of social and environmental challenges i think it is uh you know there are more um opportunities to increase diversification and attention uh, potentially move away from areas of the market that might look uh, you know for want of a better phrase overheated at certain times if you do take that broader view of sustainability challenges so you know the example i would use is Certainly towards the end of last year, there was quite a lot written about the huge increase in valuations, uh, particularly in anything revolved around cleaner energy and cleaner technology, particularly in the US, which was largely driven by um, Biden's election in, in November last year. If you take a very narrow view within your mandate of looking at that specific subset of sustainability, then potentially there are more challenges um, about moving away from, from names that might be overvalued. But if you are able to look at other areas of sustainability, either through the environmental sphere or also social challenges, uh, you know, health and well-being being a key one as well, then maybe you can orientate your portfolios away from those, uh, as I said, potentially overvalued parts of the market. The, the, the last point I would make on this as well is, I think it's also really important, and this is sort of investment 101, if you like, but just to remember to concentrate on, on longer-term timeframes. I think it's really important when we're trying to assess valuations within the world of sustainability, at looking at multi-year, almost multi-decade timeframes to understand what the opportunity set for those businesses are, what projected revenues may be attached to those, and try and understand whether you know, today's valuation is warranted and supported, and try and identify those businesses within the sectors, 
whether they are perceived on average as overvalued or undervalued, that are going to be the long-term structural winners rather than sort of flocking into a sector because it's it's the um, you know the, the favoured one of that month. As I said, last uh, quarter of 2020, clean technology was potentially one of those. So be uh, selective in your investments within a sector, but also maybe use a broader framework of sustainability to allow yourself that uh, that room to, to move into areas that maybe aren't, as I say, sort of framed as the, the flavour of month stocks. Thank you, Ben. Um, John uh, from Tavistock, John Leeper, um, how do you think about it? Is, is it just a question of being broad in terms of, of uh, the universe that you define as sustainable? Is that the answer? Um, or is it a, a case that just as in other asset classes, there are cheaper ones and, and dearer ones and one just, one just has to find the, the cheaper ones? Yeah, well, firstly, um, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's a great opportunity to so um, big thank you. Um, I pretty much agree with uh, what Ben was saying, particularly at the beginning regarding um, what is sustainable investments. You know, it's a it's a it's a it's a catch-all term. So you know, how do you define it exactly? And the same for bubbles, right? I mean, there's varying definition of bubbles. Um, you know, what you know, what are we looking at? But to specifically answer the question, I think the best place to start for me might be with an example, such as. You know, the spectacular rise and subsequent fall of clean energy stocks that we've seen you know, over the last year. You know, enthusiasm over the shift to cleaner energy has clearly helped drive spectacular performance you know, for the sector. But as a result of that, we saw total assets invested in, for example, EI Shares Global Clean Energy ETF, which went from around $700 million at the start of the year to almost $11 billion. You know, so that, that's, a, that's a huge amount of growth in a very short space of time. And you, you know, to my mind, you need to take a step back and, and just ask yourself whether that kind of growth is, is sustainable or not, pun intended. I mean, clearly one component of a bubble is when expectations run ahead of reality. And a big part of that is the whole, this time it's different narrative, which essentially makes it difficult for us as investors to know exactly where we are in the cycle. Uh, when it comes to clean energy, I, I think the reality is it will it will take some time for the real economy to get where it needs to. Um, you know, I have no doubt we will get there in the long run. Um, but when asset valuations detach entirely um, and stretch the upper limit of just how far that elastic band can stretch, then you get an environment that's conducive to you know elevated volatility, you know, and, and a potential correction. And that's exactly what we saw with this ETF, too much money chasing too few shares leading to spectacular gains that we as a firm were actually fortunate enough to participate in, you know, before coming back down to earth um, slightly. Now, the, the reason I like this story is it really demonstrates just how important it is to know exactly what you're invested in. Now, clearly that always implies, but especially in ESG land where you get investors who genuinely want to do the right thing, you know, they want to exercise their capital responsibly. But you've got to offset that against the potential for Wall Street to use, you know, various terms that many people might consider to be greenwashing. So there's, there's the opportunity for a, a degree of miscommunication. The less you understand what it is you're investing in, the greater the opportunity for, for that mishap. So just to broaden and slightly expand the example I, I started with, the interesting thing about that particular ETF is it tracks an index that was created 14 years ago, uh, comprising just 30 stocks. Um, and you know, when they created it, I'm sure it probably would have been fine. But 
it reached an unsustainable situation that meant that when they created, when they uh, conducted the inevitable rebalance to the underlying index, you, know, you had huge sums of money flowing into certain names, but also flowing out of names. You know, there was the equivalent of around 50 days worth of turnover for certain for certain underlying stocks. So I've been quite narrow in, in my approach to this question because I thought that Ben did a good job of approaching it from a broad angle. Um, but to answer your question, you can avoid bubbles by taking a holistic view um, because sustainable investing does not operate within a vacuum. Do your due diligence um, and you monitor a number of key factors. So for us, it's momentum. Um, it's the underlying fundamentals um, and it's investor sentiment. And for me, these factors combined can help investors navigate the temporal cyclicality and volatility you get around the key underlying um, trends and, and themes that clearly drive you know, these kind of investments over the longer term. I suppose it's a bigger question whether the whole market is in the bubble or not, but you know, certain pockets of it certainly are in, in my view. Thank you, John. Roberta over at Schroeder's, your, your job title has head of value in it, so we're, we're expecting lots of, uh, lots of insights into, uh, into how, to find, um, how to find value in the uh, sustainable investment uh, universe. I mean, look, the first question is, what does, what does value mean to you in, in that context? And then how do you go about finding uh, those opportunities that would be more in the value bucket than any other type of investment or indeed that would be bubbles? Yeah, well, um, thank you, David. Uh, and I think you're quite right. The first thing to emphasize is that I do sit in the Schroeder's global value team. So <laughs> the name gives it away. But between us, my team has got over 120 years of cumulative experience as pure deep value investors. So we spend our years um, rifling through the very cheapest parts of the market, finding those deeply undervalued stocks and I guess it's no surprise that the philosophy of our team is very much that, yes, we value and we buy in the dirt, cheap, unloved parts of the market because we trust that by doing so, and we believe the academia that says that by doing so, we will deliver for our clients over the long term. So our sustainable value strategies are basically funds of undervalued ESG leaders uh, with also an overlay of active engagement. So to be held, um, stocks need to be firstly an ESG leader, so actively, positively sustainable, and um, qualifying as that sort of ESG leader credentials. But secondly, and equally importantly, to be held, a stock needs to be deeply undervalued. So with all our funds in the value team, and it applies here too, these portfolios are made from only the very cheapest part of the market. So to get there, we screen ourselves into the cheapest 20% on absolute terms of the market. And then we follow a rigorous process that we follow for all of our value strategies, which basically keeps us disciplined, keeps us in that cheapest 20% of the market. And yes, we have ESG as an equal footing in these funds, but we don't deviate. And by doing so, I think, Inevitably, we avoid investing in bubbles and um, we can use our experience to really push us into those uh, value areas. Thank you, Roberta. We'll stick with you for, for the next question. Um, how can one build a portfolio of sustainable uh, stocks, in, in your case, that's truly diversified, you know, given that the 
you know sustainable investments must have many characteristics in in common how how does one uh, achieve this diversification element of portfolio construction yeah of course i mean good question so i guess the simple answer is uh, very easily <laughs> but i guess i would say that so maybe um for a bit more detail around it so firstly, for the ESG criteria, we buy companies which are both uh, have a positive sustainable positive impact on society. And secondly, uh, these companies need to be ESG industry leaders. But as I said, we only buy in the cheapest 20% of the market. And of course, the stocks and sectors that appear in that cheapest part of the market by no means static and the composition of um, that cheapest bucket as you allude to, changes over time. And uh, through various markets, we've definitely seen many different sectors fall out of favour and sit in that cheapest part of the market for, what, one, three, five years before sentiment can flip and stock prices can recover. And in recent history, yes, we've seen some of the worst performing ESG sectors cropping up in this space. So just think thermal coal, tobacco and so on. And I believe that that's sort of one of the reasons why there's a very common misconception that value and sustainable investing are mutually exclusive and why perhaps there's not a big enough opportunity set within that value space to build that uh, diversified portfolio of ESG value leaders. But uh, if there's one thing that I can't stress strongly enough is that that misconception is just not true. So in the cheapest buckets of the market at the moment, there's a huge range of different companies that we can invest in. So just think um, European insurers, there are developed emerging market healthcare companies, a wide range of telecoms, and I mean, the list goes on. And maybe if I can just put some numbers around that as well. So as I alluded to, we buy in only the absolute cheapest 20% of the market. So that's the cheapest 20% before any ESG criteria is applied. And then we do apply that sort of stringent ESG criteria to find um, ESG leaders, so positive societal impact and ESG industry leaders. And then we also have some liquidity constraints. And even with all of that, we're still left with around 300 names to choose from. So to build our, what, 40 to 50 stock portfolios of cheap ESG leaders, we can reject around 85% of the names 85% of cheap ESG-friendly companies that we look at to build our portfolios. So not only, I guess, is sustainable value possible, but actually we believe you can afford to be really quite selective within that space. Okay. Roberta, thank you for that. Um, John, uh, obviously at Tavistock, you're you're coming at it from the uh, uh, fund point of view. Um, When you look at portfolio uh, construction uh, in the sustainable space. Do, do you find that all of the funds look a little bit alike? Um, and how, how do you try to create some diversification uh, for clients in sustainable investment land? Yeah, so our primary job as, as fund managers is to generate you know, good investment return for our clients. And within the context of sustainable investing, the broad challenge is to decompose the ESG rating from various third-party providers and try and assess which of those are going to be most important to driving corporate success and therefore are most relevant in the context of returns going forward. So whilst we, you know, of course, screen through our various um, ESG metrics and we have a very rigorous quantitative process in place for conducting that analysis, it's really the interaction between that and various financial 
traditional financial metrics, though I think is, is the sweet spot. So we don't focus on just one thing. We, we focus on a you know, wide array of, of different factors, which in many ways is the definition of um, you know, diversification. I suppose you know, in terms of truly diversified, I mean, I suppose my favorite, the way I prefer to phrase it is sufficient diversification. Um, because, you know, of course, I do believe it's more than possible to build a portfolio that is sufficiently diversified. Uh, the way that we do it is via a, a, a series of risk progressive um, solutions that primarily uh, invest in exchange traded funds. And we do it across asset classes. Um, so I suppose there's a broader question now whether a standard 60 40 type portfolio, equities and bonds, delivers the same level of diversification benefits that might have done previously with valuations as lofty as they are you know, across the spectrum. There's certainly sufficient scope in the ETF space. I, I think I think initially, you know, um, there was probably more range and scope in the e, in the S and the G of um, of ESG, but actually over the years, you know, with the Paris Climate Ag- Agreement and, and actually Larry Fink's letter from 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 BlackRock, but you know, in particular, since then we've seen this kind of plethora, this this kind of explosion in the range of ETFs that are available, um, and they really are now also tapping into that into that into that E of of ESG. Um, fixed income has also historically probably been lagging. There's always been a, a wider range in equity land, but not so much in fixed income land. But now we're actually starting to see more and more products come to market that we can that we can invest in green bonds um, and the like. So you know we have a we have an ESG policy in place. We impose um, various screening metrics. Uh, we look at the liquidity of the market coverage ratio, um, and 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 we find no issues constructing, you know. Um, diversified portfolios that actually can, can go, go, go on and perform particularly well. Thank you for that, John. Um, and Ben at, at Brooks McDonald, um, how do you think about this? Presumably you have clients with different capacities uh, for risk or clients with certainly different investment uh, horizons in, in other ways. How do you plug those different priorities at the client level into uh, the suite of sustainable investment products presently on the on the market? Sure. Firstly, I'll briefly, I suppose, um, differentiate our our services um, and I'll frame the, the answer in the context of our responsible investment service. So firstly, just to briefly touch on our core portfolios and our core services, then we have integrated ESG and sustainability um, over the last 18 months in a much more structural, in-depth way across all of our investment platforms. And that's really based on, on the fact that we think there are some very uh, financially material elements to ESG assessments, um, which we think will be beneficial for overall client returns, whether they have explicit sustainability preferences or not. But we also have very a responsible investment service where there are sustainability objectives as explicit parts of the investment mandate. So for us, we have two mandates that we run client money in line with. Um, firstly, avoid is a, 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 I suppose, the more traditional mindset of, of uh, what we all used to call ethical investing is highlighting certain business practices and sectors and, and just uh, excluding them from portfolios. The second mandate is advance. And that's the one I'll, I'll structure the, the, the bulk of the answer around. Um, because that is where it's uh, a much more positive inclusionary mindset around uh, positively contributing to the broad sustainability agenda. And for us, we frame that in the context of eight key sustainability themes being cleaner energy, resource efficiency, sustainable transport, 
um, and water and waste management being four environmental themes, and then the four social themes being health and well-being, safety, education, and financial inclusion. And our mindset in that mandate is looking for companies and in investment exposure to uh, businesses that are providing solutions to those eight areas through their products and services, but also businesses who whose products and services might be defined as more neutral, so not having a very clear positive alignment to those challenges, but in our view, not a net significant negative impact either, um, but are making positive contributions through how their, their business is, is managed and run. So with, with that being the framework, um, within our responsible investment advanced portfolios, we do manage portfolios across a range of risk appetites from, from um, what we would define as low to medium, so a 30 to 55% equity portfolio, all the way up to a, a high risk portfolio. We um, have been operating uh, the service for the last two and a half to three years. And even in that time period, we've seen the investable market in funds, which is how we build the portfolio, grow significantly. We only looked to launch the service two and a half years ago when we felt that there was already a, a large enough selection of investment strategies and asset classes available, which allowed us to build those portfolios. And we felt that would offer clients a strong financial return, coupled with a, a real positive alignment to those objectives that we set out in advance. In terms of how we, uh, we, we try and ensure diversification, then firstly, I think that broader range of challenges that we look to address and engage with across that environmental and social spectrum allows us to look at a greater range of sectors. Um, so I think, you know, we do have structural biases in our portfolios from a sectoral perspective to areas like technology, healthcare and industrials being the three primary ones, and then the corresponding underweights to areas like, like the traditional energy sector. But we are able to invest in a large percentage of the underlying global economy and a broad range of sectors. And within that uh, investable universe, those sectoral allocations um, can move in different ways and be, and be driven by different factors over shorter time periods. So if I take the last six months as a case in point, then obviously a lot of focus has been put on this reversal in, in the technology sector that drove market returns through 2020 and the alignment of, of a number of, of technology areas to the sustainability agenda and how that has reversed through the first six months of this year. That is absolutely something that has impacted portfolios um, in our responsible investment service. But we also have exposure, uh, significant exposure to areas in the financial market. You know, Roberto already mentioned uh, European insurers, but um, you know, developing and developed market uh, consumer banking models um, are also elements of our portfolio, which we believe have a strong sustainability uh, connection, but also have performed relatively strongly in comparison to other areas of the portfolio like technology based on the, the inflation interest rate uh, landscape at the moment. And then the second area that, that I would focus on um, that's already been brought up is the idea of multiple asset classes. You know, we do, do build multi-asset portfolios and a lot of attention in this sector tends to get placed on equities, which is understandable. It is where the, the broadest range of options and most development has come. But I think where probably the fastest development has come over the last 18 months has been in some of those other sectors, such as fixed interest and bonds. From a structural perspective, looking at the development and proliferation of green bonds, social bond and impact bond structures, but also just in terms of how can you assess the bond landscape with that ESG and sustainability man sorry, mindset, uh, looking at um, kind of 
generalist corporate credit. And then the final element of portfolios that we consider are, are what we would define as real assets. So those um, asset-backed, uh, usually income-generative type strategies that sit within infrastructure or, or property. And for us, we do look at things like um, renewable energy infrastructure assets. Uh, and in the property space, we take a thematic mindset as well, looking at healthcare, healthcare properties primarily. So I think there is a growing opportunity set here, which is only going to increase moving forwards. But for us, diversification can come from geographic allocations, sectoral allocations, and asset class uh, allocations, whilst being cognizant that we do tend to reflect certain structural biases, which we want to reflect over the longer term anyway. Thank you, Ben. Um, John, uh, I guess the, the other area that it's certainly very topical in, in all parts of the investment market at the moment, and I guess I'm really curious as to how that, that plays into the sustainable investment universe, which is around uh, can one and do you adjust sustainable investment portfolios to take into account uh, different points in the market or economic cycle? Is that something that's possible to uh, to do? Yeah, it's a, a great question and, um, you know, and, and very timely, uh, particularly in the context of the broader rotation that we've been, we've seen play out um, since October from growth to value, for instance, within the, you know, within, within equity markets. So, for example, in our non-ESG funds, which which we which we also manage, you know, we've rotated out of those long duration uh, stocks like tech and other quality names, and then we've invested into cyclical value stocks, in particular the financials, the energy, industrials and materials um, subsector. Um, now, traditionally, many um, ESG ETFs or mutual funds, um, you know, by their very construction, are naturally more tilted to the tech sector and to the growth names. So it's not particularly surprising that some of those um, investment solutions have underperformed um, during that period as this as this rotation has played out. But there is scope to rotate, um, and there's typically less exposure to these value sectors. But nevertheless, it's entirely possible to do so. To give you a few examples um, across our ESG proposition, referring back to the, the clean energy ETF that I mentioned earlier, you know we we, we played that for much of 2020. We took profit on our on our allocation, which actually outperformed the benchmark by well over 100%. And we rotated into large incumbent industrials, uh, which provide the less glamorous tools uh, needed to modernise grid infrastructure, for example, um, to improve you know energy efficiency. Um, so that rotation trade within the sustainable space was linked to a number of macro indicators, which have started flashing on our dashboard. Right, so that, that's kind of the way we look at the world. We have a very top-down view. We look at a number of global macro indicators. We try to identify these market cycles, and then we then we look through that prism to determine how we can then implement that, um, you know, across the across ESG land. To give you another example, we also increased our exposure to UK equities. Previously, we we had none, but we now have some exposure uh, to those names that screen via our process. Um, as well as Japan, which, of course, is a very cyclically exposed sector, which has also continued to benefit from the long-awaited implementation of ex-Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's third arrow of economics, focusing on improved corporate governance, the G in ESG, and, of course, Prime Minister you know, Yoshida Suga's uh, ambition to reduce Japan's um, CO2 emissions by about 50% versus the 2013 level by, by around 2030. So there's, you know, that's going to require a significant amount of Public and, and, and private investment. Uh, I'll, I'll just I'll just summarise by 
by specifying that you know time horizon is very important when you're referencing market cycles, as is the distinction between trying to trade a cycle and actually just investing for the long term. So I think you could invest your money into ESG, uh, broadly speaking, and uh, you know um, receive a handsome return over over a good few years. Uh, and that's because ESG isn't just about growth and value and sectors and this kind of rotation that I was just describing, but it's about extracting return from exposure, not explained by the by the traditional traditional factors. Um, but that said, at Tavistock, you know, our main goal is to add value through the market cycle, um, and to that extent, you know, the top-down market and our macro outlook is key. Uh, we monitor central bank language, shift in monetary and fiscal policy, the inflation outlook, and we ask ourselves, you know, where do we want to be positioned in the market? This is the, the the screened investment universe through which we can play those strategies and, and what is the most effective way to do it. So uh, it's entirely possible. And actually, I think it will become increasingly um, um, possible in the future as asset managers start to leverage big data, which ultimately is the key driving force behind ESG investing. Thank you for that, John. Um, Roberta, shoulders have certainly got a strong reputation uh, for doing uh, for performing well and for running mandates that are designed to perform well using the value factor. And and you've described earlier how uh, you, you sit within the, the value team. But is it possible within the sustainable investment universe, in, in your view, to to adjust based on where, where we are in, in the market cycle? Interesting question. I guess I'm exactly the opposite side of the spectrum in that we do very much uh, fundamental bottom-up work uh, within the value team. And in a way, that leads our portfolio rather than necessarily taking a macro view and uh, following that route. So I guess maybe just a bit for the philosophy behind that. So as the value team, I think we believe that uh, academia has pointed us towards the fact that over the long term, buying in the cheapest part of the market, no matter what else is going on in the world, history has shown us that over the long term, that can achieve really repeatedly and uh, significant returns. So just to think about the data set that we have, we have over 150 years worth of data, which points towards value working. So if you think about 150 years, that covers things like uh, two world wars, the first car, the first plane, the creation of the internet. And even through all of that, we have value over the long term outperforming, which is also independent of whatever's going on in terms of um, ESG or sustainability. So within that ESG and sustainability piece, I think we believe that there's still plenty of room to just follow our noses with that uh, value approach and let that lead the way for whatever's happening in the rest of the market. Thank you for that, Roberta. Um, ben at Brooks McDonald, how do you, uh, how do you think, think of these? We, we've, had, we've had John describe the, the top-down focus. Roberta, talk about coming at it from, from the bottom-up approach. How, how, do you, how do you see the world and how, how do you think about market cycles? Yeah, I think you know, being a um, discretionary fund manager building multi-asset portfolios composed of, of underlying fund strategies, then you know, our, our mindset and thinking is probably more governed by that top-down approach of you know, the, putting the building blocks together where do we want to be positioned in the world, I suppose through traditional mindset in the world and between asset classes. You know, I, I think within us, well, within all our portfolios, I say we're integrating ESG and sustainability into our thinking on core services, but particularly in our responsible investment service, 
then we're putting a few extra considerations at a structural level around what are our viewpoints on the sustainability agenda more broadly? How is that going to govern global economies moving forwards, policy action, consumer trends? In our view, we think that there are some, some long-lasting structural shifts in underlying global economies driven by the sustainability agenda. And, and through 2020, obviously, a lot of news flow, and I think we'll look back on it as the year of, of COVID and everything that that brought with it. But I think alongside that, we saw a huge amount of policy and government rhetoric around looking to build back better and, and kind of align recovery packages and, and economic recoveries more broadly with addressing uh, the large global sustainability challenges. We think that's going to have long-term, multi-year, multi-decade implications for investment markets. Now, absolutely, that won't play out over every month, every quarter, every you know year. But we think, going back to John's point about maintaining long-term time horizons, we think that that will be meaningful and a meaningful structural tailwind for portfolios over, over that multi-year time horizon. So what I would say is, again, referencing our responsible investment portfolios, we do have structural biases, which will likely remain over the longer term. Um, and looking through the traditional lenses of growth v value, they tend to sit more towards core growth rather than deep value. From a sectoral perspective, as I mentioned, technology, healthcare, and te uh, industrials tend to be the three most pronounced overweights with corresponding weights in traditional energy. And we want to maintain those, as I said. But we're also very um, aware of what markets are reacting to over shorter timeframes. And we will look to make amendments to underlying portfolios to temper down some of those biases, depending on what the medium term outlook is. So what that means for us is absolutely being aware where we have high growth exposures, what is likely to drive those over the longer term, but potentially over a, a shorter term window as well. Is it better to maybe reduce some of those allocations, increase allocations to what we would define more as, as core core sustainability valuations, but ultimately we're absolutely governed by long-term mindsets and therefore don't want to be too reactive and try and get caught up in the short-term market noise because ultimately that's where I think our value will not come through. Our value, we believe, is being able to achieve those longer-term risk-adjusted returns through market cycles rather than getting caught up in the, the short-term noise. Thank you, Ben. Okay, guys, relatively brief answers for this last question, please. Many of the areas that all three of you have been uh, discussing are areas that are sort of well known to the public as being sustainable investment uh, hubs and, and focuses. But perhaps what do the next generation of opportunities look like as society changes, people are becoming more aware, perhaps, of the impact of different sectors of the economy, and we also have rapid technological change presenting new opportunities. So I'm, I'm really keen to get a handle on what the next generation of products will look like and uh, companies in which one can invest will look like. But as I say, relatively brief answers if that's uh, possible. And we'll start with you, Roberta. Well, what are the next generation? It's, it's hard to say, but I guess one thing that we're quite excited about is just how much the disclosure from companies is improving with regards to sustainability and with each new piece of information that a company discloses it helps you to build up the ESG profile of the company and I think that's so important that companies continue to uh, push that disclosure point because that's I guess 
the only way that we're going to fairly um, and consistently see which companies are actually leading the way to a sustainable future and help us to find those uh, new opportunities in a fair way. Thank you, Roberta. Ben, from your point of view of Brooks McDonald, uh, when when fund providers uh, come come to you, are are you noticing, I suppose, new stuff being uh, invested in, um, in addition to the more uh, traditional or well-known areas of of markets? I I mean, we we have green bonds as one example that's just emerging, but are there others? Yeah, very briefly, I would agree with Roberta. I think that the level of disclosure is improving from, from corporates, but also from funds, which helps us as funds. So I think that's a big development. From, from, a, from a sort of sector perspective and new interesting areas of the market, then, you know, I think if, if you take solar and wind as renewable energy sources, they've gone very much from the, the periphery into the mainstream now and, and are broadly market competitive. If you look at the conveyor belt, then hydrogen is is obviously we're talking about overheated past the market was probably one of those in 2020, but that is still on that cost curve at the moment. You know, trying to get green hydrogen into the system to roll out into the um, transport predominantly, and then I think these aren't in portfolios yet. But what conversations and interesting debates are happening for maybe much further out or around again power sources and, and transportation? What's the future of air travel going to look like? Uh, shipping, um, and then to say looking much further out, uh, nuclear fusion, um, I think is this kind of holy grail of renewable energy um, for, for base loads into energy systems. But we're, we're talking a long way away before that becomes anywhere near cost competitive. But I think this is what makes this area interesting is there's always something that, that's down the line that is hopefully going to um, sort of improve the sustainability uh, journey moving forwards. Thank you, Ben. And uh, John, what are your what are your thoughts on this uh, area? Uh, you know, we live in a world where big data is coming to the forefront of everything we do. Um, increasingly, there are more and more tools to leverage data, including artificial intelligence, machine learning, natural language processing, and so on. And at the same time, uh, assets are increasingly becoming intangible in nature. By which I mean, you know, no longer looking at factory fixtures and fittings, but brand strength, patent rights, or employee sentiment. So to capture this information and to, and to use it, you need a lot of data and clever ways to process it. And a lot of that falls into the um, sustainable space. Um, I mean, let me provide a brief example. If you ask a, a CEO a simple question, are your employees happy? You know, I expect they'll all say, yes, all of my employees, they're, they're perfectly happy people and they're all paid very well. But today it's possible to use web scraping technology to monitor the mood of employees, and then you can employ machine learning technology to best capture that investor sentiment. So from this kind of online chatter, you can understand the internal mood amongst employees, which which actually may well differ from the headline news. So if you look at the front page of a newspaper, it says, this company is taking incredible strides, uh, you know, look what we've achieved. But if you lift up the bonnet, you realize actually the employees are, are increasingly stressed due to the arduous deadlines imposed on them by senior management and employee sentiment used in this way is an example of of like a social metric or um, maybe the S in ESG that can be used as part of the input process and is a, as in, for investment decisions and is typically a strong leading indicator for subsequent you know, stock market performance. So there's a wealth of information available to use from alternative data sources that, that are almost designed to be used in an ESG context 
um, and this data set is exploding. So more data, faster computers, falling data storage costs mean that this trend um, is not only very exciting, um, but it's clearly got uh, a lot further to go. Thank you for that, John, and thanks to all of my guests today, Roberta Barr, head of the Value ESG team at Schroders, John Leeper, Chief Investment Officer at Tavistock, and Ben Palmer, Head of Responsible Investment at Brooks McDonald. And thank you all for listening. And do remember to tune in to the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Goodbye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.